Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and we've got a solid lineup today. But before we get there, maybe a, an event or two I wouldn't mind telling you guys about. Uh, first up, October 2nd at the Vancouver Club, we have our Navigating the U.S. for Business panel. We're going to have experts discuss the best practices to optimize opportunity in times of geopolitical challenge and steer away from all those difficult straits. And we also have, as well, at the Vancouver Club, October 9th, it's Cannabis Year One, where an expert panel examines the opportunities and challenges and provide insights on the most likely successful next steps as we move into the second year of this industry. Find out more about those events at BIV.com slash events. Now, kicking off today's show, the BIV Tech Panel featuring Glue Technology Society's Linda Fawkes and Electron Communications' Matthew Klippenstein. They're going to talk to us about plans for ride-hailing all across the entire province, not just in Metro Vancouver like Uber and Lyft plan to do. And we're also talking about the launch of what some are calling the world's most important electric vehicle and has nothing to do with Tesla or Porsche or anything like that. And later on, Dan Sutton, he's the CEO of Tantalus Labs. He joins the show to talk about some controversy with regards to cannabis-infused beverages, as well as marketing restrictions that might be preventing Canada from becoming a bit of a mecca for cannabis tourism. Let's get started with our BIV Tech Panel. And joining us this week on the BIV Technology Panel, it is Linda Fawkes. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society, as well as Matthew Klippenstein. He is a consultant at Electron Communications. Linda, Matthew, thank you guys both for joining us on the show today. Hey, Tyler. Okay, so first up, we found out that Cater, which is a BC-based company, they've been providing rides to people through these taxi licenses that they've acquired, as well as a mobile app. Well, now they want to provide ride-hailing services across all of British Columbia. This is significant because Lyft and Uber says that for now, they only really intend to operate within Metro Vancouver. I'm wondering, uh, Linda, do you think this is, could be like a sustainable thing? Should all British Columbians be rejoicing or should we be a little bit hesitant to see how this actually plays out in reality? I think we should be rejoicing because ride hailing should come all across the province, wherever we need it. Uh, I wouldn't be rejoicing if I was on the board at Cater, though, because... They're going to, the only play they have really, as far as I can see, is getting regional and staying where Uber and Lyft aren't going to be. Because as soon as Uber and Lyft hit Vancouver, goodbye cater is my take on it. And we look at Austin, Texas, when Austin, Texas briefly, and I think it was 2016, uh, Uber and Lyft pulled out for reasons around fingerprinting drivers. Within a few months, a bunch of local companies came in and offered a similar service. That went really well till Uber and Lyft came back. And within a number of weeks, it was over, game over. It's Uber and Lyft. Again, so I think that brand recognition matters. I think that we're looking at two companies who have lost a combined total of $13 billion growing their market. They are in no uh, move to be profitable anytime soon. So as long as growth is on the horizon, subsidies will happen, fares will, pricing will stay down and low. And I don't see how Cater com, you know, competes with that. So they better get where Uber and Lyft aren't if they're going to keep a successful model happening in BC. Yeah. Do you think this could work uh, for Cater going forward, Matthew? Or as Linda was saying, maybe there is uh, maybe some trepidation in the boardroom right now. Uh, I think there is... Um... I'm sure there's always trepidation when you're coming up against a large behemoth such as Uber and Lyft. I think the um, 
Cater might have a good uh, timing, uh, much better timing than the smaller competitors in Austin, however, uh, for the reason that it did establish itself beforehand, um, before Uber and Lyft have arrived, and also because the, uh, the, the tide seems to be turning a little bit against uh, Silicon Valley unicorns. Admittedly, Uber and Lyft do have massive uh, cash piles, but uh, perhaps as evidenced by their stock prices, which have somewhat fallen, um, the assumption that they will always have readily available cash to raise from wealthy investors to basically subsidize their rates and undercut uh, other uh, taxis or other ride-hailing firms may be coming to a close. Now, it could be that Cater is still too early for that uh, portion to come into the game, but um, uh, they are... I don't think it's guaranteed that they'll follow the example of the smaller Austin players. Well, what yeah. do you guys think? Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Linda. I was just going to say, working in a space where I know how hard it is with the glue people to get them to download apps, mm-hmm. that it's it's tough to get people to download an app. We're talking about three apps. You got to get the Uber app, the Lyft app, the Cater app. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one challenge. But the real challenge I see is people want to get from A to B fast. And they want to do it cheaply. They mm-hmm. want to make it cheap. And Cater, I don't see how Cater is going to compete on price as soon as Lyft and Uber start to do their uh, their subsidies and their maneuverings. I know they have the same minimum as the taxis here, but their rides are priced slightly differently than a taxi. So, um, yeah, I think that that they will get it'll will get crushed. It's going to be a difficult time for them. Yeah, well, Linda brings up a good point with all the apps that you'd be carrying on your phone. I mean, Matthew, look, if you're doing a business trip to Victoria or something mm-hmm. like that, would you, and you want to get around easily, I mean, what would you consider as your options? I mean, would you be willing to have, you know, carrying around maybe multiple apps at once all for the same service? Yeah, so I would, uh, I, I have multiple banking apps. Mind you, I do bank with multiple banks and credit unions, but uh, I I, uh, my experience hasn't been the same as having people downloading multiple apps. Uh, one advantage that Cater could have is that for in, in, intra-BC travel, travel within BC, if Cater is the only ride-hailing uh, opportunity for people who want to go outside of Metro Vancouver, then that would be a big network effect plus for them. Now, that said, the, the majority of people doing business in Vancouver are probably doing business with larger centers outside of Vancouver, so there would definitely be a much bigger network effect for Lyft and, Lyft and Uber. But within BC, um, perhaps there's enough of a network effect there to ensure that you know, I might occasionally go to Victoria or to you know, Kamloops, Kelowna, Prince George. There might be enough of a uh, enough traction there if uh, if Cater is able to deploy in all those uh, in all of BC's region. Yeah, and I like their vision within the app that we could presumably, you know, we could go from our hotel room in Vancouver, hop on the C bus, and have the cater car waiting for us take us to the ferry and the cater car is waiting at the other end of the ferry so that's nice to have that all seamlessly uh, contained within one app allowing us to travel literally door to door using different services with the cater app providing the connection piece between all of those services so that's pretty slick right and i think that actually caters small size works to their great advantage in this regard because being as uber and lyft are such behemoths I think there would there would be very great trepidation from transportation, you know, public transportation groups and other uh, other such institutions to like team up with them because mm. are we going to get obliterated? Are they going to basically you know uh, a- adopt the entire ecosystem? Uh, with Cater, Cater would be small, like I don't know, like a Switzerland or one of the Scandinavian countries. In that, well, you know, they're small enough that they'll respect you know our needs and we can negotiate uh, data exchanges with them on an equal basis, as opposed to am I just feeding this? 
this uh, you know this gigantic dragon who will swallow me one day. And what I've learned definitely in the market right now is people will allow the giant dragon to take all their data if it means mm-hmm. free or cheap services. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there you I, go. Guys, I, I just can't wait until winter hits because it, it's going to be um, one heck of an entertaining you know, showdown. You don't mean like Game of Thrones winter. You mean well, like Vancouver winter? <laughs> Vancouver, <laughs> when the rainy time uh, really hits us though, when we presumably will be getting these apps going, it, it's going to be... Very fascinating. I think it's going to be a bit of a crazy sort of uh, deal that we're going to see take place. And this is just one arm of this thing here. So that's going to be interesting. Speaking of transportation, though, uh, Renault, the uh, big French automaker, they're launching what some people are calling maybe the uh, most important electric vehicle in the world. Matthew, why don't you fill us in on a little bit of the details here? So you, of course, are an electric vehicle expert. Sure. All right. So uh, in the past week, we've had a bunch of electric vehicle launches. Uh, the Porsche Taycan, very high-end, sort of Tesla challenging or you know, Tesla augmenting, if you if you follow the Porsche fans. Uh, Volkswagen has unveiled a suite of electric vehicles they'll be selling first in Europe. Um, and those are, again, middle-class kind of uh, first-world type vehicles. But Renault relatively quietly uh, introduced its uh, quid zero-emission uh, vehicle in uh, in China this year or this this past week. And uh, the quid in India, it's actually sourced in India with local suppliers, sells for about $4,000 to $5,000. It's a nice little subcompact, kind of like uh, maybe the Nissan Juke, if you imagine it ruggedized for uh, you know the majority world for developing countries. Um, and they introduced an electric version for China, which will cost about 8500 US. And uh, the, the really big transformative thing here is that instead of being like a, like a middle middle range for the uh, for Western or for, for wealthier countries kind of electric transportation. This is a perhaps 200 kilometers of uh, real-world uh, range electric vehicle, which costs you know, on par with what we would call in, our, in uh, an entry-level vehicle here. So basically, you're, you're undercutting the previous price points. And uh, perhaps most importantly, this is a vehicle Renault has committed to taking to other countries, to India, to Europe. Uh, there are Chinese. But, but I ask you this, Matthew. Yes. Uh, how are we doing in North America? Is there going to be any entry point in the near future? So, for this particular vehicle, seeing as North Americans tend to like larger vehicles for some reason, uh, this is unlikely to uh, come to North America. Ah. But in areas such as Europe or Asia, where there's lots of density in urban centers, small cars are still extremely popular. And uh, one can imagine, at least uh, certainly when I was in, in university, if I had a chance to get this little. Uh, little vehicle which wasn't already 20 years old and had you know roughly this kind of a price point, then uh, that would be very attractive for me, particularly since I could save on gas. And the idea here is that, um, so there are, there are with from Chinese automakers, uh, sort of low speed vehicles, you know, much, much cheaper electric vehicles still, but these are sold only in China, essentially. They're, they're never meant for export. Whereas this is a a vehicle, an electric vehicle, battery electric vehicle from a first world brand, which will be exported to multiple markets around the world, which is at a price point uh, many people thought was impossible. And so, uh, so it is very transformative because it will open up that category of vehicle to so many more buyers than than just us in well, the yeah, uh, and the, the promise of, of the electric vehicles was we were going to have zero emission vehicles crowding our streets and making the planet healthier, and all of a sudden we got trapped into this who's faster, Tesla or Porsche, and how much can we spend on this electric vehicle? And the average man is very much left out of that equation. So, how do we get electric vehicles here that our kids can afford to buy? 
that our taxi services can use that mm-hmm. we can use as people and, and not consider these extravagant big purchases. Cause what I hear from the kids these days is that they just have no interest in car ownership. They just right. want to get in a car and A to B and the environment matters to them. So mm-hmm. I would love to see this car here. It'd be so great. It's uh, it's like you have different price points, right? Uh, you have the, the deluxe vehicles for the people who, uh, who like performance uh, vehicles and you have the more functional utilitarian uh, electric vehicles. And now we have some entry-level vehicles which are coming in, which are very promising because, again, that opens up the zero-emission personal vehicle space to more possible buyers. Do you think that's going to be amping up competition, though, uh, If uh, unless the competitors really want to let Renault like get ahead of the entire market, do you think that we are going to see even more of these entries of similar sorts of vehicles in will, the near future? Will Elon take the challenge? I, I, that's what <laughs> I wonder, though. So I don't think <laughs> Musk would uh, would try to to create a, an actual bare bones kind of a entry level vehicle because if you're a, you know I don't think like Rolex doesn't make you know little starter kids watches I don't think at least if they do I'm sure they're expensive sure. <laughs> if you're a premium brand you know you you sell premium products but there is a huge space for utilitarian brands practical brands right uh, you know, Toyota has uh, has gained its success not because of its styling which is you know, utilitarian, uh, but because uh, its its vehicles are like appliances, you know, they just run, they don't really break down. And so offering more vehicles at lower price points, which are still adequate for most people's needs, or perhaps their second vehicle's needs, a family's second vehicle needs, then that, that will help uh, push us forward. Excellent. So uh, guys, let's just leave off on this. A uh, bit of a news that came out last week that uh, Burnaby-based tech company Clio, which specializes in software for law firms, making all those administrative tasks much easier, just raised a quarter billion dollars U.S. Uh, This is what they're calling the largest raise of its kind in Canadian history. Linda, what do you think this means about raising the profile of the BC tech sector, maybe in the eyes of some of those Silicon Valley investors? I think it's amazing. And those Silicon Valley investors that participate in this deal are big time. These are guys who have invested in some of the biggest deals that have come through Silicon Valley in the last 10 or 20 years. So I think it's amazing. I think it shows that a van, a BC-based company can compete on a global scale and get interest from sm- some of the smarter, smart, sorry, smartest dollars in the space. And also it can remain in BC. This doesn't, this is a small to medium-sized software as a service company targeting uh, small to medium-sized law firms. So they don't need to be based in Toronto to do what they do. They don't need to interface with the head offices of the big corporations that are based in Toronto. So it's a great BC story all around. And they've done a really winning job since their first placement back in 2014 with Bessemer. They've just picked their really smart money and moved it up a scale. And I'm hugely impressed. And go BC. Yeah, is this kind of a shot in the arm for the province, uh, Matthew, in your opinion? I would think so. It's it is the largest uh, venture raise I think that uh, we've had in the BC tech space, and um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's never something to to turn away from, but rather to embrace. You know, perhaps uh, we'll be able to have some people targeting an even bigger raise the next couple of years to try to one up Clio there. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, Matthew, Linda, I want to thank both of you guys for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is Linda Focus. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society. And Matthew Klippenstein, he's a consultant with Electron Communications. Stay with us. Tanless Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he joins us next to talk about the latest in, say, cannabis-infused beverages, as well as marketing restrictions in the industry.
Tantalus Lab CEO Dan Sutton. He's, of course, one of our regulars here at BIV. He joins us today to talk about the cannabis industry. Lots of interesting things to delve into. But first, Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's start with cannabis-infused beverages. A new story coming out of Quebec about maybe the province not really being on board with the future of this. Uh, We have some public health directors. They're raising concerns about beverages that are maybe too sweet, masking the taste of cannabis. Their argument is that maybe this will lead to people ingesting too much. What's your take on some of these recommendations that uh, the province there is putting out? It's interesting because it sort of seems like it's in a bit of a vacuum of information. So first and foremost, I would say the gross majority of beverage inputs, the uh, source material that goes into the product that allows for THC absorption into the bloodstream is flavorless and colorless. So it's very unlikely that you're going to get a sort of warning signal from your beverage experience that it does in fact contain THC. Uh, You're going to have to rely on the can and the retailer to demonstrate that. Accidentally ingesting edibles is a thing that has happened in unregulated and in regulated jurisdictions. It's always unfortunate. I'm sure it will happen to some degree uh, in the the legalization of, sort of cannabis 2.0 and edibles and beverages, although it seems pretty unlikely that if you are, are holding a can in your hand, you're not even going to look at it before you consume it. So I think first and foremost, you know, consume with caution. But I think Quebec really needs to ask themselves, you know, how are their standards? How are their regulations in place to prevent uh, especially youth access to these products. And I would say that the attractiveness of the beverage is actually a a weird and and sort of hard to quantify um, rationale to to limit consumption, especially by at-risk demographics and and underage consumers. And what they really should be leaning on is the, the viability of their identity verification and age verification at their storefronts, which if they're operating them effectively, uh, should be excellent. I I wonder if there's somewhat of a double standard because I I think about a lot of the controversies over those Elkopops, you know, the the Palm Bays or or what have you, where they kind of look like juice boxes to a certain degree and they're able to be advertised. I've seen them, you know, years ago, maybe advertised at bus shelters, not too far away from schools. Do you think that there are going to be, but we have seen them being clamped down on as well. Do you think that we're having kind of uh, maybe a bit of a knee-jerk reaction ahead of these cannabis-infused beverages, just looking towards maybe uh, the making sure that kids aren't getting into them. Right. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think when you look at this sort of Wild West existence of alcohol advertising, especially when it comes to alcohol pops, most leading policymakers in Canada and leading academics might suggest that that's actually socially a negative. It's an experience to be learned from and not really a fair standard to mark cannabis against. Uh, Obviously, I I might not personally disagree with that as the CEO of a cannabis company that wants to see our products uh, reach consumers wherever they derive value. But moreover, um, you know, it's it's the question is, is is how unsafe are these cannabis beverages? How likely are they to create uh, social harm, you know, burden on our healthcare system? And uh, especially with the federal regulations that have stipulated that one beverage container cannot contain more than 10 milligrams of THC, uh, which is certainly enough to elicit a psychoactive effect, but not necessarily enough, I think, to substantially inebriate a user if they only consumed one. Uh, I think they've done a very good job in mitigating the potential risk factors that would send someone to the emergency room with an unpleasant experience. It's also totally worthy to note that the LD40, the lethal dose of cannabis or THC, has actually not yet been defined. There's never been a recorded case of someone consuming so much THC that they actually die. So in the eventuality that any of your listeners or anyone in this room consumes too many cannabis edibles, 
you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. You got to ride it out. If you do end up going to the emergency room, the doctor is probably just going to laugh at you and watch you ride it out in a safe environment. Uh, so I think when it comes to actual quantifiable risk or healthcare cost risk, uh, these cannabis beverages are, are pretty low on the spectrum and the federal government has done an excellent job in, in setting a standard that is, is unlikely to create uh, you know, substantially negative outcomes for accidental ingestion. Uh, help me and, and other people that might be ignorant of this, but do we have an idea yet about what it's going to take uh, to get somebody inebriated from just one beverage, two beverages, three? I mean, for me, I at least have an idea for how much wine or beer I would consume. I, I wouldn't even have a clue when it comes to this. Well, that is the million dollar question. And uh, in short, it sort of comes down to the individual. It also comes down to the inputs. This is really interesting because uh, we are partnered with a company called Valance Growworks. They have a really awesome relationship uh, with a beverage input technology company that actually enhances the bioavailability and the absorption rate uh, of the THC that they put in their drink. So the milligram numbers are going to get you close. If you have a five milligram beverage uh, and you've tried it before and you know that you like it, that's going to be a, a really great marker to be able to define how much uh, you can actually handle. But if you go with a slew of whole different beverages, it's feasible that different beverages with the same milligram amounts might have higher bioavailability, albeit uh, like it, it will be within its sort of close range. So I think at least at the outset, if you're concerned about over-ingestion, there will be mild products on the market, there will be medium products on the market, and there will be high-strength products on the market. Uh, don't fall into what we might call the American tourist in Amsterdam trap and go and find the most intense edible or beverage you can find. Go with something uh, that's that's uh, a bit milder. And at least from Talos Labs' perspective on beverages, we want to offer things that are sessionable. We don't want something that you have one drink and that's the only thing you need to get you, you know, substantially... Uh, psychoactive, psychoactively high for <clears throat> the rest of the night. We'd rather that you had a mild experience. Maybe you follow that up in an hour. Maybe you follow that up with a third beverage uh, over the course of, of, of a full evening, similarly to how you might drink beer. Uh, and that's that's certainly, I think, it should be a priority for a variety of different cannabis firms to, to make sure that those, those beverages are unlikely to create unpleasant experiences the first time you consume them, because then uh, we may have lost a customer. At that point. Well, so Quebec seems to be pushing against maybe uh, the, the 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 advent of this industry here. Though, how is it working with regulators? Because obviously, you want to get your products to as many people as possible. Uh, you're going to be dealing with various provinces. Uh, any recommendations, or what's been in your experience so far? Well, there's certainly there are more pro-business or pro-cannabis business jurisdictions in which to do business. We currently do not distribute products to Quebec, although we're, we're constantly assessing new potential distribution partners. Um, but the fact that we're not in Quebec right now should probably send a message to sort of, I know that the broader industry is somewhat concerned about the restrictive nature of, uh, of Quebec's policies around this. And I mean, I think we are going to see winners and losers in the provincial cannabis markets. When, when you limit the amount of stores, when you limit the amount of, uh, of kind of business facilitation that is, is 
available to cannabis businesses and to cannabis retail businesses and, and to all of the various participants in the supply chain, uh, people might just rather do business anywhere else. That That's a cool feature of cannabis legalization in Canada is there isn't quite the same tariff and bureaucratic structure as there is in alcohol, which we're now sort of trying to pull back. Accessing beautiful BC wines in Ontario or great Ontario beers in BC, this seems to be uh, something that we endorse uh, as Canadians, but only relatively recently. So it's, it's certainly easier for cannabis companies to do business uh, than it has been for alcohol companies historically in terms of nationwide distribution. And that's a, that's a huge advantage to this new system. Um, but ultimately, to the victor go the spoils. And as we can see by the sort of uh, dawdling revenue in, in British Columbia, uh, British Columbians are not taking advantage of the same tax revenue inputs as we're getting in Alberta uh, or in Ontario, ironically, that has a very small amount of stores, but seems to be doing swift business through their e-commerce platform. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think provinces are long-term, they're incentivized to facilitate cannabis companies as best they can, because the more they facilitate those companies, the more tax revenues they will generate, and hopefully the more uh, interesting programs and policies and systems they can then spend those tax revenues on for their for their citizens. Well, you know, we, we couldn't help but bring up, say, uh, talk of beer and wine when we're doing our comparisons here. And look, uh, one of the big tourism things that we have here in British Columbia to market is, say, wine country in the Okanagan. Uh, same with Ontario. They've got their own wine country as well. But when it comes to cannabis, uh, there's a CBC story uh, out in the past week, and they're, they're talking about Canada has really kind of fallen on its face, trying to market itself as a bit of a, a tourism hub for cannabis. And a lot of it has to do with marketing restrictions here. I'm curious about what is your take? Are, are we losing out on a lot of industry opportunities because of some of the restrictions that industry is facing due to uh, government? Absolutely, we are. I mean, I think about what I would like to experience if I was to go to a legal cannabis jurisdiction as a tourist, and then hopefully be able to touch base with their industry from a retail perspective, their industry from a production perspective. I mean, I think the vision is ultimately the sort of wine tour model where you could go to various legal cultivators in, say, the Okanagan region, talk to them, understand what they're thinking about, understand how they see the world. And especially in British Columbia, where we have such a storied history in cannabis, we have so much to teach. We have so much to show people. This really may be even from a from a gray market perspective, the Napa Valley or the Bordeaux region of cannabis on earth. And so I think there are a lot of people that are, are really excited, yet we've got just some, it may not even be intentional, but some unnecessary bureaucracies around a lack of farm gate sales. You can't actually buy cannabis from a production facility when you go there uh, or sampling regulations that have said, you know, you, you have to bring your own cannabis to a cannabis tour. Well, that completely defeats the purpose. So in British Columbia, we have a substantially tourism-based economy. Uh, it's It's really picked up a lot of slack from historic industries like timber and mining. And I think we need to give uh, the people that come to visit this province every reason to get excited about our, our local cannabis industry. Uh, perhaps there's a bit of a lack of political will at this early stage, but I really hope we see uh, British Columbia especially shape up to be one of the premier destinations to sample and experience beautiful cannabis on earth. For you, it's not as if you are specifically targeting tourists at uh, Tantalus. You know, as you said, there's no farm gate sales or anything like that. But tell me what you're thinking about with regards to getting your name out there. How do you kind of work with within these marketing restrictions that we do have here in Canada? 
Well, our greatest marketing initiatives over the last six months have all been retailer focused. So while we cannot vertically integrate, we cannot have a flagship store available in, in British Columbia, which is really unfortunate. We'd love to give people a sort of physical experience of what the Tantalus Labs brand really is and why you know it's so important to us to carry the torch of high quality West Coast genetics, high quality British Columbian cannabis and, and sustainability in it, the cultivation of our greenhouse environment. And so we've just been leaning in as hard as we can to educational events, uh, educational documentation, and relationship management. I think that's what we've kind of realized is that from a cannabis company's perspective, this is really about, it's more about a hospitality model than a sales model. And when we go and sit with the original farm in Victoria, you know, a, a, a great retailer that was able to make the transition from gray market to legal. Uh, they've got a beautiful, beautiful store and, and they're potentially facilitating, you know, a huge market of the 15 million tourists a year that come through the city of Victoria. We want to give them as many informational resources as they can to advocate for our product when someone comes in and says, you know, hey, I'm from the States. I'm here to try some great VC bud. What would you recommend? We definitely want to be one of the brands that's on the tip of the bud tender's tongue. And I think the number one thing that we can do is deliver exceptional quality product experiences uh, to, to end customers and have them coming back and asking for more. And that trickles to do the bud tenders, to the owners of the stores. So our marketing initiatives have really been retailer focused. There are some amazing entrepreneurs that are doing super good, good work uh, here in Vancouver, in Victoria, across the rest of BC, and ultimately across the rest of Canada. And uh, if, I, if I could say one thing to all of them, it would be uh, when someone comes into your store specifically asking for quality BC bud uh, we, we'd love to be in the running uh, for, for a recommendation well there you go <laughs> Dan always great to have you on the show thanks for joining us today thanks so much that's Dan Sutton he is CEO of Tantalus Labs and that's it for the show today you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher so please tell a friend for now I'm Tyler Orton and we'll be back Wednesday <laughs>